Welcome to the Red Dove. I'm Liz. I'm Blue. I'm Rainy. We are a feminist podcast and we gather and we like to share stories. And uh, tonight we're going to be discussing a couple chapters out of Beyond Survival, Strategies and Stories from the Transformative Justice Movement. It is available. Uh, we got all of our copies from harrietsbookshop.com. Harriet with an S, bookshop.com. Transformative Justice Movement. It started in the 90s. Uh, look it up, Google it. This isn't the show about that. This isn't the intro course. So we wanted to talk tonight. Um, book is for anyone. It's very informative when you say, well, what does defunding the police look like? That's too abstract of a concept for me to wrap my head around. Or the haters, it would never work. It, it's never it's never been tried. It's, it's never going to work. It can't work. All those things are wrong. It's been working. It's been tried. It's been working. And it can continue to grow. But let's take a minute looking at chapter one, building community safety, practical steps toward liberatory transformation by Jaris Dixon who is one of the editors. And she starts, mom, when you were growing up, did you ever call the police? I can't remember any time that we did. What did you do if something violent happened? And then the mom explains, it depends on the situation. Um, oftentimes they would send men, brothers, uncles um, involved to interrupt the violence. But Ms. Dixon goes on, she said, my mom grew up in New Orleans in the 1940s and 50s and 60s. Her entire life was marked by experiences of state violence and Jim Crow segregation. The police, white citizens council and the Klan intermingled to form the backbone of a racist political and economic system. Her experiences were not unique, just as the use of state violence against black communities is not new, neither are the ideas of transformative justice or community accountability. Transformative justice and community accountability are terms that describe ways to address violence without relying on police or prisons. These approaches often work to prevent violence, to intervene when harm is occurring, to hold people accountable, and to transform individuals and society to build safer communities. These strategies are some of the only options that marginalized communities have to address harm. And Ms. Dixon goes on, as a person who has survived multiple forms of violence, I know that ending state violence alone will not keep me, my family, my friends, or my communities safe. I'm excited by the campaigns that organizers are pursuing to divert money away from police departments and into community services. However, I want us to push this work one step further. I believe we can build community safety systems that will one day operate independently from the police and government. The process of building community safety poses some critical questions to our movements. What is the world that we want? How will we define safety? How do we build the skills to address harm and violence? How do we create the trust needed for communities to rely on each other for mutual support? Just like starting there and quoting the editor, the book is comprised of um, every chapter is a standalone. This one was from the editor. I thought it really maps out for people that might not know these basic concepts that we're discussing and that we will be discussing. That's what we're talking about. What did you guys think? I love the question of how do we define safety? Mm -hmm. That is a great starting point because that goes back to everything we were just talking about. Um, we have to have definitions so then we can also understand if in, a, in hitting that mark and achieving that goal, again, if we're equipping people with the tools necessary to meet it, and, and that's not even just the people, but the communities. So if we have extreme lack, can we create, or what is the likelihood, since we, we enjoy using data because we know that it we can build you know, we can uh, read it uh, based upon patterns and trends, right? What are the likelihoods? What's the probability of what we want to avoid or what we don't want to occur in a community for it to be safe and be productive? Yeah, I agree. I actually really love that question. How will we define safety as well? Just because safety looks very different 
for different communities, different pods, like we were talking about, you know, like even our community uh, playgroup pod, safety looks like something different. You know, safety for us was making sure that our kids were okay and that we had um, access to, you know, play structures that were safe and clean. Safety to me as a single mother now, you know, means something completely different. If I'm out and about, can I be okay on my own in this area? Because I don't have any men around me to ward somebody off. So am I in a safe position when I take my children out and about? How would I, I'm always looking at, you know, if I'm somewhere and something happens to one kid, what do I do with the other while I try to go get that kid? That's a constant concern for me. So safety looks different to me now than it did five years ago. And it's constantly changing. Something that I really, what struck out to me while you were reading this, and even while I was reading this before was, you know, it said that this transformative movement kind of started in the 90s, but I, I, I would... I would push against that and say, I think it started even before that. I think the Black Panther movement, every time I think this, I'm like, that's what they did. They did do this. They did, they did not rely on the police because they knew that the police caused so much harm to people of color. So they didn't call the police. They made sure that those children got to school. They made sure those babies had breakfast every morning. You know, they made sure that, you know, single mothers were taken care of and everybody had enough to eat. That's also, you know, that was radical then, you know, and, and they also made sure people understood their rights, you know, because um, mm-hmm. they didn't like Black people being accountable for themselves. So it's not this whole idea that, you know, Black people need punitive justice because we can't police ourselves. We're, we've shown we are very capable and, peop- in, and, and communities of color are very capable of policing themselves. It's that, you know, you get these state funded or these county funded, you know, jackboots who come in and ruin those opportunities, you know, and, and people don't have other resources because yeah, calling the cops in certain communities, you just don't do that, you know, because you know, it's going to be worse, you know, safety in a community where, you know, a mother, you want to be safe from harm, but also, you know, calling the police on your husband who, you know, maybe does need a lot of help and services, but he's also violent, but you know, you call the cops on him, there goes your source of income. There goes your stability. Better to know the demon, you know, better to have the demon you know, right? So, you know, people always say, well, just call the police. You have to deal mm-hmm. with violence in a lot of different ways, you know? And and um, so that's kind of what I was thinking about when I was reading this chapter was, again, like, how do you, how do you do that? And I love this idea of, you know, these community norms, right? This is how we do things in this community. This is not appropriate for this community. And then again, that accountability, you know, sending in people. And I think back in the 60s and the 70s, people were less afraid of getting in people's business. You know, I think that's kind of an issue like, we're like, oh, I, I can't say anything. That's none of my business. But, you know, when you are part of a community and you treat those people like family, you don't mind getting in business as much, you know, in our pod, our playgroup, I didn't mind getting in business and being like, you're not going to hurt my friend. She's going to stay with me, you know? Mm-hmm. So if you build those relationships, then it's not quite as, you know, it's hard to jump in stranger stuff, you know, in this book, it talks about, it is much harder for women to just go about women and, and LGBTQ uh, community members and non-binary people and trans um, folks. You can't just go out to strangers and hope that it ends well, right? That's a scary thing because you don't know, you might be facing some other types of violence, but again, building those communities so they know who you are. You know, they were even saying, I think in this book, like, you know, you have these, you know, guys who are selling drugs, but they're also protecting, you know, gay friends because they're part of their community now. And, you know, these stereotypes don't no longer exist, you know, it's like, hey, you're not going to mess with this trans person because this is a friend. I know this person. It doesn't matter about any of those, you know, those stereotypes that, you know, gangsters do this and, you know, gay men do this. This is, this person's in my pod, you know, Mm -hmm. and, um, and again, yeah, I think the Black Panthers did that, you know, and you see, how do people do it in other countries that don't rely on state police or other areas? You know, that's exactly what they do. You know, if you look at, you know, Aboriginal tribes and stuff, they don't have police coming in and policing. They handle things on their own. They don't have prisons or anything. It's accountability. It's you do the right thing because you're supposed to, and we're going to make sure you do the right thing. And we're going to set the precedence within this community that this is unacceptable to all of us. 
you know, and we are social creatures. And, you know, just the sociology of human beings is we want to be accepted. We want to be um, a part. We want to be in the in-group and, you know, uh, being ostracized because of our behavior. That's a great way to deter bad behavior is we just won't accept you until you decide to change. Instead of putting them away in prison where you're ostracizing them, then you bring them back with no resources or, you know, all these other, or, you know, sending people who are not in the in-group into your space where, you know, you are a danger, you're a threat, you don't understand the norms or our culture at all. And that's when things escalate. You hit it right on the head when thinking about like, we really have to define that because if we don't understand the nuances of the community, then we're always going to strike out. In my belief, there does need to be a sense of order and that at times we need assistance with when we're going, when we've jumped and we're completely off the deep end. Now, within some of that, um, the way that's organized, does it have to be to the point where people are demeaned and humiliated and no longer a part of society if we're going to really rehabilitate people? That's one thing. I think the other thing is for me in those instances and experiences where you may have positive and good interactions with the police, in defunding the police, thinking about what it's really meaning, that is support, right? First of all, for those that are truly doing what they need to do. We want to get those people out of there that are not, that are walking around with your badge on saying that they believe something and that they're doing something that they're not. They they don't deserve that. The other thing is we want you to have support. We know in our own professions, it's not easy when you're like, your job is literally just to input the information, but the person who's giving you the information is having a terrible day they're not able to stay on track. They need multiple, like other elements of assistance that you're not there to provide. We've all been in those situations. And for us that are in positions that are of the local government, state government, federal government, we all need to support one another. That's why we all have these different departments. If we don't have the the counselors that are handling family guidance and domestic violence and drug abuse, if we're not going to respect them and what they are, what's the point? Why, why are you giving the funding if you're not going to use it? And granted, we need a ton more. Let's just throw that out there. We need a ton mm-hmm. more, but mm-hmm. we want to help you because there, there may be that counselor that's equipped with crisis counseling. That's equipped because there, that person may have um, felt that they wanted to com- commit suicide too. And now they've dedicated their life to it and they're doing amazing, an amazing job reaching people. So let that person support you. Let the, the counselor who is skilled in domestic violence, let them be the person to tell somebody, take a walk and then have the conversation. Right now we're in a position where you're just like my black skin, your uniform precedes yourself. That's, that's what we're in right now. And we have to understand to move to some other places as a society, everybody has to take accountability right now and everybody has to be able to listen and understand the next person. There are communities that are raised, like you said, Rainy, you don't talk to the police. You don't talk to the police. I've had little kids in my life that I loved that, you know, we've grown up in different spaces. Just, you walk in, you see a police, look the police up and down like they did something to them. Shocking, four and five years old. You know, we, this is where we are right now. And we have to address all of these things so that we can essentially rebuild. And that is what, that's just what we're in. This is going to be a rebuild and we have, let's do it kindly and let's do it together. Let's not do it separate because at this point, it's violence. The violence is, it's in full effect. And there's other, oh, sorry. Sorry, I, real quick, I'm sorry. I just wanted to touch on something you just said, Blue, which I loved and, you know, it kind of goes back into what we said you were talking about. You know, even somebody who's in crisis and possibly suicidal and having somebody else who's gone through that go through that again. You know, and I mean, what a beautiful way to help with rehabilitation, you know, those who know teach 
and you know, in the book, you know, uh, Dixon says, some of the people with the most practice working on violence are deeply embedded within the criminal legal system or other punitive structures. I mean, I mean, how powerful would that be? You know, those who understand those and utilizing people who understand these different facets of life. Um, so I, you hit on that and I thought that that was um, perfect because yeah, I mean, who understands more of what's going on through somebody who is suicidal than somebody who has been at that point? right? Mm -hmm. Somebody who has been there, who understands how to curb violence better than somebody who has dealt with it, either has been a victim or has been a perpetrator, you know, and we oftentimes don't listen to those people. You know, we put it in the hands, again, very often of police officers who have no idea how to handle any of that, who have never been in those shoes, you know, we want to penalize people from being homeless, for being homeless, but you know, some people who have never had to worry about where their food is going to come from, right. who have never had, you know, medication for mental health issues that they can't afford and, you know, things like that, you know, so, you know, we have that lack of empathy and lack of compassion and we should be putting these services in the hands of people who do understand those and who do empathize with those. And again, that's all in community building and community yes. organizing, you know? Mm-hmm. Yes. And knowing that there are uh, alternatives to to the police, for, ex- for example, mental health, there are other numbers in your some communities beyond 911 that you can call. And right now, you can have a, a mental health professional come. Like, it's not in all communities, but like building these relationships. And when you are building these relationships with your community, spreading the information around if if you are an expert if uh Ms. Dixon mentioned it like she was using be be aware of your privilege and then use your privilege to dismantle the system so for for Ms. Dixon her privilege was in education she's a very educated woman and she had relationships with prosecutors and other uh, people for the system and so she shared the knowledge with her community here's a number you can call as an alternative to 911 if you are in a situation, a mental health crisis. Here's what to do if the police approach you. Here's your rights. This, These are your rights in this situation. So it's, first build your community by establishing the relationships with your community members and then start spreading the knowledge and the resources. We did that. Yeah. <laughs> The only reason why I lasted as long as I did at Fort Drum was because of that community that we made, our mom's group. Mm-hmm. Like that was the only reason. I mean, do you remember Ellie? Um, I might've come right after her. She had a biracial um, son too. And she was okay. white. And then her husband was like Russian or something. Okay. So maybe you came right. But I remember we had that play group, you know, we had that core group and then it expanded, you know, you forget her calling me one night just absolutely terrified she had run out of her house she had no shoes on and she had her son because her husband came home and he was drinking and he was like I'm I you're gonna perform your wifely duties and she Mm. was no and he ran out of the house with no shoes on Mm. and I went and picked her up and she stayed with me for about two weeks until her brother and her dad could come up from North Carolina to come get her and it was scary you know and I was like okay like so what happens and I remember my ex being like well don't get his unit involved you know you'll ruin his career exactly that's the thing that they're worried about his career I'm like you know then he ended up getting in trouble because he drove drunk and he was driving and he got into an accident he's still in he's still in to this day they worked it out and she moved down to Louisiana with them but like you know that there was nothing for her. Like, where would she have gone? She was like, I don't know where to go. And, you know, leaving the house and I had to go pick her up. And I was like, you can't tell him where you are. Right. Like just because Mm -hmm. I have a child and it's me and my Mm -hmm. husband isn't home now, he's, he was doing training. And I'm like, so you can't have him pissed off. And then I'm in the middle of it. Like, if you come, you just can't tell him where you are. Like, that was my only stipulation. Cause I'm like, I can't, you know, it's this guy decides to do something. It's just us two women and two kids. Yeah, yeah that's I mean, a good point. 
when you say he's out, he's on training, your husband, like for us, what that means for us is that they could be gone for two weeks. Mm-hmm. It doesn't and mean I get oh, that. he won't be home till nine o'clock. Like we are, and where we lived, it was um, an Arctic blizzard. But a lot of these places, no matter where they are, they're isolated. Right. They, they, the army buys the land cheap. So it's typically in a socioeconomic low income area outside of the base. So right. again, you're, you're isolated upon isolated upon isolated. And as much as you hate the oppression, that man is also your protector, mm-hmm. whether you like it or not. So when we say he's not home, he's not when he's when we say he's on training, what we mean is he might not be home for at least forty eight hours, as much as two weeks or a month. That's so, crazy, and it's it was very scary. And it's not uncommon for a lot of those men to only have one vehicle and take that vehicle to work with them. Right, that happened so much. Like I'm taking the car, and then you are at home. That's it. You don't go anywhere. You were just stuck. Yeah. And even trying to do better. I wanted to go to school and I was trying to go to uh, Potsdam, SUNY Potsdam. Mm -hmm. And I was like, it's an hour and a half without snow. There's no, there's nothing for me to do. I can't finish my BA here. Exactly. I could only get my AA at Jefferson, that, that community college. And I did that. But then I was like, I'm stuck. There's nothing else I can do. And the only education they offered for wives was like, you know, um, like telecommunications or like health stuff that would benefit the army. Right. I was like, well, what about a teaching credential? Like, well, you know, you're not going to be around any one place to be a teacher long enough anyway. So, you know, you need skills that you can go around to help support your family unit, you know? So they, they do. It is a system that makes you very, very, very dependent Mm-hmm. And, and I, I also found that even just the, um, you know, there's a lot of social hierarchy that happened in the army too, you know, and, and how explain that, explain that, can you explain that to people that don't know, um, that aren't military wives or yeah, partners? So, um, you know, my ex-husband was an officer. So that means you go through and you get your, um, you get your uh, bachelor's degree. And so you go in as an officer. And then if you don't have a bachelor's degree or you don't go through um, the officer training, you go in as enlisted. So there's a hierarchy, there's a difference. So officers are usually in commanding roles and they're usually superiors. And so they let you know as an officer's wife that you can't cavort, you're not supposed to cavort with enlisted because that could ruin you know, the, uh, the chain of command, right? You know, Dealing with a, a superior versus an insubordinate. So, you know, that was isolating for me as an officer wife because I was the only black officer wife I knew because the officer corps is a good old boys club and you don't see a whole lot. You see a lot of, you know, people of color in the military, but often, you know, these recruiters go to high school and they tell these kids, yes, you can do it, get out of this situation, but they don't talk to them about going to college. So the ones who can afford to go to college right off the bat are the white kids. So you have officers who are in charge and they're all predominantly white. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have that class structure and that race structure. But um, so they make a point, you know, I remember when I first got there going to officers wives club meeting versus enlisted wives club. Oh, I hate this story. Yeah. And I remember I, this. I was so upset the first night we got there. I, I went to the officers wives club and I was like excited, you know, I, you know, like brand new wife and I'm like let's do this you know I like I'm I'm like ASB type of person like I love just getting involved with stuff right so I went and um, I'll never forget I show up and the it ended up being the major's wife you know so she was a big wig on our base she comes up to me she's like oh honey no 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 um the enlisted wives meeting is next week and I'm like I'm I'm an officer's wife I was like very confused and she's like well you don't have any blood who's your husband? And I knew she was saying, we don't have any black officers. And she could not figure out who I was there for. So I was like, you know, I said who my husband was and she was like, Oh, you mean the, the, the bald one. And I was like, yeah, the bald one. Cause I knew she was going to say the white one. And she stopped herself, you know, and she 
could not understand what I was doing there. She had automatically assumed that I was, which, you know, that there was nothing wrong with being enlisted, right? Like, you know, you need all of those, you need all of those working parts to make that whole engine move. But the fact that she just thought that, yeah, no, you aren't on this level with us. You're at a different level. Clearly, you're, you know, you're black. You're clearly not one of us. That was, that was, and I dealt with her a lot and, mm. and not being able to say what I really wanted to say. I, I suffered a lot of abuse at her hands, um, not being able to say what I wanted to say because that could directly affect my husband's job, mm-hmm. you know, and then not being able to hang out who, with who I wanted to hang out with because I didn't, I didn't get along a lot with officer wives, you know, because a lot of them came from privilege and were white. And, you know, it's not that I am not used to, you know, affluent white people, but I'm also uh, more used to a little bit more woke affluent white people. So, you know, you have this very, very right winged idealism of, you know, the Republican Party and how things should be. And, you know, you see a lot of them like sporting Confederate flag stuff. And you're just like, oh, and, you know, the way my ex-husband would talk to me about the way they would talk about people of color when they didn't know because they he never you know he didn't have a flag being like hey I have a black wife like watch what you say so he would tell me awful stories of you know the men when they're all in their officers club talking about you know oh I'd never bring one home it was I mean it's very toxic it's a very toxic environment and you know a lot of the wives are very toxic too um I remember you know as as you know you're you know the listeners can't see my hair color changes all the time it's been pink it's been blue it's been everything so I had donned a blonde wig for an event you know I was feeling my Beyonce self um <laughs> and, and I went to an officer's wife's dinner and the major's wife sat down next to me and she was like oh look at how pretty your hair is can I touch it Mm. granted we're all eating and I mm. looked and I was like no I don't I don't want you to know you know and she wasn't expecting me to tell her no and she was taken aback because I was like you're you're eating like no and in front of everyone loudly she was like oh you're right you probably wouldn't want it to fall off your head or anything like just humiliated me in front of this whole like dinner thing and I stared at her and I was like I don't I don't understand what you mean. Like, he played dumb. I was like, I don't understand what you mean. She was like, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, cause it's not yours. I was like, I mean, it's on my head. So it is. And she's like, well, wow. I mean, you know what I mean? And I was like, no, I, I don't know what you mean. Can you explain, can you explain what exactly you're talking about? You know, and, and she got embarrassed and she was like, oh, well, you know, it's not anyways, you know, and, and that was the last time I ever went to an officer's wife meeting because it just felt it felt terrible there um you know so when I we had our group of you know um of wives you know it was really it was more diverse but I think if memory serves me correctly I think I was the only officer's wife yes I think everybody else they their husbands were enlisted and I remember you know have you know my ex was like you know you need to be careful and I was like I careful about what like your job is your job. You do whatever you need to do and however you guys need to handle things on your end. But like my relationship with these women is not going to be affected by you and their husbands at work. It's just not, I don't, I don't agree with that. I love these women. These women are my people. I feel them and they see me and I see them. And I don't want any of that toxicity, that social hierarchy messing up with the relationships that I have cultivated. And I found safety with this group. You know, I found, you know, that sisterhood, that camaraderie, you know, all of our children were all born within months of each other. And then we all got pregnant again, right? around. (laughs) So we all had two kids. And it was funny because, um, you know, everybody seemed to have boys first. Mm-hmm. except me and it was and then everybody had little girls but then I had a little boy but like it was it was awesome and that was that community that we had built we met twice a week and there's no way I would have survived being out there without that group of women I mean to talk about what was happening and knowing that you know some women's husbands were saying awful things to them and being awful and you know knowing that I had that support system knowing that if things got out of hand with my ex, which, you know, sometimes they did. He kicked down the door while we were in New York too. You know, I knew that somebody would know that something was wrong if I didn't show up to stuff. I knew that, you know, 
I had these groups of ladies, if I needed a ride somewhere and he had taken the car, they wouldn't let me go without. They wouldn't let my kids go without. You know, when I was studying for an exam and I needed to take a test and my ex didn't want to help watch the kids, you know, I had friends who'd like, we'll bring the kids over. We'll have a play date, you go do your thing, you know? And it, it literally like saved my life out there, you know, because I have never felt so isolated and alone in that environment and, and to be black and in that situation where, you know, you're, you're black, but then you're married to a white man who is in, you know, the superiority position, it puts you in a really weird nebula, right? Like it puts you in a weird position that there aren't a lot of people like you. So, you know, I came up with a lot of enlisted wives who didn't really want to talk to me because I was an officer's wife and that, that hierarchy, like, no, 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 you know, you're stuck up. We already know. And, you know, rightly so. I mean, officer's wives were really stuck up. They were horrible, but you know, like trying to find kinfolk, you know, and people who you could be with. And, and then again, like building that community. So, you know, in this book beyond survival, I mean, I know it's more about community building communities, you know, to deal with violence, but I mean, also, you know, different areas have different ways to build communities. And I thought that what we had built there was beautiful. You know, I mean, we ended up doing every, every holiday, we did a little party and, um, you know, we dressed the kids up and, and it wasn't just about a place for our kids to play with. It was about other women seeing you and understanding what it was like to be sometimes 3000 miles away from home and having no one and being like, I'm pregnant. I don't know what to do. I'm scared. You know, um, when I had my, my son, um, my ex flew out to California while I was still in the hospital after I had had him. And I was completely alone in New York and my friends helped. My friends took my daughter, my friends took my 150 pound dog. They brought me home from the hospital. I thought I had to get a taxi from the hospital with my newborn son. They brought me food, they hang, hung out with me. I had nobody out there except these women and they were my family. And I mean, I will love these women till the day I die. It was a beautiful thing. and you know, and this book talking about building those communities, I imagine that that's kind of what those, that's kind of what they're talking about, being able to build communities where you don't have to call the police, you know? So even our friend whose husband did what he did, she didn't call the police. She called me and I got her, you know? And I feel like had something really went wrong, I could have called Liz. I could have called some of our other friends and been like, can we stay for a couple of days just till I can figure out how to get home. And that would have, they would have been okay with that, you know? And, and husbands would have probably been able to step in if it got to the point of being very violent and being like, you're not going to, you're not going to hit on your wife on, in front of me. I'm not going to let you do that. That was kind of my experience with that. So when I was reading this book, I was like, you know, we do that, you know, I think we naturally do that as people and especially as, as women. And, you know, how do we make that more of a accepted thing, especially, you know, with LGBTQ communities and, and trans and non-binary people, because, you know, I think we were a very unique group because we were very diverse. We came from all different. We had some people who were very, very right-winged and we had some who were like hippy-dippy left-wingers, you know, and the moderates who never wanted to say anything. But at the end of the day, we were like, you know what, but we still have to have each other's backs. We still love each other because you were another woman. And I see you. And that was the beauty of that. Rainy, when you brought up um, our experience, like our group of women, they, they talk in the book, they mention it later, their term that they use is called a pod, P-O-D. And it, um, I think we talked about this in an earlier episode on the Red Dove, but women, get yourself a pod. If you don't have um, a nuclear support group make one and that's what rainy was um sharing was our pod that and we called it called ourselves um the play group yeah play group play group crew yeah play group moms uh we're still friends with them today we still talk to this day the ages i was one of the oldest i was in my 30s when we went in there was someone as young as 18 there was um, someone from Texas, very right wing, I could tell. And then there was someone like me, 
that thinks like marijuana should be decriminalized on a federal level. So there is there was such a wide range and um, the pigmentation, we were the color of a rainbow. There was not one shade in this group. And in fact, this was, uh, we lucked out. This was a unique little pod, but majority of the children were biracial. They were not one race. It was to me, and I haven't felt like this pod situation often, it was lucky, but it felt like it was the blending of these women that had nothing in common, but for, we were all stuck on this Arctic rock called a, <laughs> an army base, uh, hour, right? Like hours away, like we had nothing in common. But so I found the group, uh, a wife of a um, gentleman in my husband's unit told me about it. She didn't have kids. And she said that there's a play group on, um, I was gonna say on campus, on base that you could join. Um, I have a lot of uh, mental health issues. Like it's very difficult for me to speak in public. It's very difficult for me to like physically take that step, make phone calls, um, interact socially, anything new. And that's like what I deal with. But let me tell you, I am so glad I showed up for that first play group. And again, I had a kid, so it was sort of like a buffer because I was so shy, so nervous dealing with, wasn't medicated, dealing with things internally. So I had this like cute little child to sort of, you know, was she, he felt like my shield. Like I was, you know, I could hide behind him when I was scared, but it was like the most diverse group of women. And that's this book when they say, talk about pods or, I think we're going to start at the beginning, chapter one, building community safety. Part of that building the community, this isn't a blanketed program that you can just put on top of the country. This is highly specific to the geographic area, maybe a five mile radius. Now, the good thing is you, listener, you can start one. Any of us can start one. That's the beauty of it. Um, and hope so hopefully you read this and and it might inspire you to either strengthen your pod expand your pod or start a pod but for mental health for women it was essential for me up there we could go on and on about that place I don't even know if I want to say where it was but um (laughs) I was really really grateful like you guys are like you you people are like family to me um and I mean, that was what I left five years ago and I still talk yep. to a lot of them. And, you know, I, once COVID comes down, I have every intention of flying out to the East coast to see you guys again, because, you know, you become family, you know, and we've seen each other through our highest highs and our lowest lows. And I was with, I, st- I helped start the play group. So I was at the very first one and, you know, that was, you know, seeing this and it was scary. It was scary being like, okay, how do we do this? How do we, you know, and I think having children, it was a buffer. And some people only came just for the play group part, just like the, I just need a place for my kids to be, but it, it evolved. You know, we all, the thing we all had in common is we were all mothers, like you said, stuck mm-hmm. on this Arctic rock. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we all understood that even if we had nothing else in common. And a lot of the people in that group, I probably would not have been friends with outside of that group, you know, just with political leanings or like, you know, where they're from. I mean, like you said, like, you know, we had people from, you know, the Midwest, you know, you Mm -hmm. have people from big cities on the East Coast. You know, I was from the West Coast and I was like, I hate everything about snow. (laughs) All of this sucks, Um, you know, you had people who had been in the army their whole lives and they had grown up in, as army kids and then married an army person, you know, so, you know, but again, you find that common ground and then you build off of that, right? And our common ground was we were all mothers and we all yeah. were married to the military and that is what held us together for sure. And, and you know, like you said, like, you know, if you don't have a pod, it was one of the things, I mean, cause I think being women, life can be very isolating, you know, and you need, you need that group. I think you need that, that um, you need a pod, you need a posse, you need, you know, your group of girls and it, it did grow, you know, so some people only came to the play group, but you know, there was a group of us probably about 
what would you say, eight or nine of us that we did things, sometimes yeah. a rare nights when we could all get our husbands to watch the kids, we would go out. I remember um, we went to that bar. The one bar in town? <laughs> the one bar in town that I was like, I'd never be caught dead in a bar like this anywhere else, but this is the only place that I can get beer or alcohol. <laughs> and I remember being out that night and it was like a mom's night out. And I remember being so drunk and crying about how Nickelback didn't get enough love from yes, sobbing <laughs> <laughs> about Nickelback, and I was like, "Why is everybody so mean about it?" But you know, I felt I felt safe enough with my girls to be able to do that, and we went out, and it was like what five or six of us, and we got yeah, we got so drunk, so drunk, <laughs> so drunk. But it was just beautiful that we could go. And do that. And, and, you know, I think the play group is still alive to this day. And we started that in 2013 when our little ones were only like seven or eight months because the other play groups around there, all the kids are too big. So our kids are just getting run over. So we made something we're like, okay, well, if you have a kid this age, this is the age we're looking for. And then it just kind of grew with that. Yeah. So I think, too, it's important to um, also think about, because I think everything that you guys are saying, and like, even I'm sitting here looking at your faces, like, it makes you feel so good to have had that space, right? For people that are unaware of what it looks like when you don't have that space, I think you both talked a lot about at the beginning, like, how that makes you feel, how that, you know, how your interactions are. And then expanding that to communities, um, just in letting that sit for a second, like even thinking about that, I just felt a weight, right? When you're, because we're talking about being in our homes. That's where we're really talking about how we want to feel, how we want to express freedom, creativity, all of those things. So what does that look like for a, community where there's toxicity or it's being over policed that looks like people that it looks like it looks like stagnance really I mean as I was saying that too I thought about the plant that can't grow you know when you have a book sitting on top of the 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 soil where you planted the seed it's not going to grow you know there's no room for it to flourish and uh, as I was listening to you both, I think a lot of um, what we feel like when we're in those, those, that type of toxic environment is almost like suffocation, you know, suffocation. You cannot, you can't breathe and you can't be yourself. And um, I think pulling that back in to um, just like having freedom, when you have freedom, you can learn. When you have freedom, you can build. When you have freedom, you can create. So I think, I I definitely believe that, like you're saying, by having those pods, right? And Liz, you hit it on the head with saying these spaces have to be within certain radiuses, right? Because neighborhoods change as you move out. Communities, cultures, when we think about the rings of culture, right? So where I grew up, you can drive about... 10, 15 minutes from where I grew up to the homes of multimillionaires, right? So what works for that community is not going to work for my community. And in creating those pods, you have the opportunity to talk about what the need truly is. For people that are interested in helping out in those ways, the best way always too is to really find out, like talk to people, just like you were saying about being everyone's friend. And we have to be all inclusive so that the whole can continue to reach back and and help the ones that are coming behind us. And Mm -hmm. thinking about the whole, it's not about just the whole community. It's about the whole country, the whole globe. If we're letting one part just like sit and deteriorate, it's going to affect us all. But I think you got, you both made very good points about how it has to be customized and unique to the experience, right? So like, even with you talking about being um, uh, in this wives pad, the play group, right? Like if it was the do- one doctor 
that's like, okay, so this is how you guys are going to do it because you really have this much time and all those emotions, you can just do this and that and blah, blah. Like Liz, one thing that you pointed out, which was so important, we're not talking about tonight. We're talking about when they say they're leaving, they're away. They're away for two weeks. So you need to know your population. And when we think about police and communities, you have to know the population. You cannot just impose, and we're doing that, right? We have all these systems that are imposed and we have um, expectations that are completely unrealistic. So for any, any growth to really be had, we have to understand one another. And, and I think we talked about that too with checking our privilege, you know, with that chapter. And so you want to talk about race. And that, that can be across any line. That can even just be your neighbor at, you know, that woman is a single parent and you have a partner in your home. That's a different culture within that home. So those things have to, they have to be considered for us to really approach, um, approach things with growth in mind for all people and stability. As I'm reading Beyond Survival, that's how I'm looking at it is pre- creating a world where we don't have to think as punitively all the time, right? Because I think everything truly comes down to education and support. And a lot of times, like we want people, yes, you have to be accountable for your actions. Um, in addition to that, though, when you're not equipped with the tools to hold that accountability, then that changes things. So you have this um, like extreme trauma with no support. And then unfortunately, because of like you, the way you said, the toxicity of the culture, and that can be across so many um, spaces. That can just be in a home period. That can be in a, an educational organization. That can be in a community. So many different spaces, a work environment, et cetera. You have people that are going through trauma and there's no regard for um, or expectation for what the social interactions need to look like to be successful. And I think even helping people understand that we should have expectations of productive, healthy um, social interactions. And that's a large piece that people, um, we just miss. Like we, because when these things happen, it's like, well, that person was acting poorly or that person did this. And oftentimes I feel like when we really talk to those people, sometimes they don't know, but then there's other times where they do know, but they haven't had the space to work on themselves, right? Like we think about education from a uh, primary level, an early childhood level. The skills that are being taught at that age level are sharing, are, you know, the social norms of the culture, hygiene, conflict resolution, problem solving. If everyone does not have the same equal opportunity or even the ability to keep like working on those skills, then the expectation has, has to be failure in that area. The, we, our vets are experiencing so many different things. And then we just say, okay, go back to the real world, figure it out. Just fi- and we have to think about the same thing with our babies who are being placed in these environments that are not healthy for anyone, anyone at all. And what, as Beyond Survival starts to really explore what these communities look like and what those spaces look like, we see this presence of police and punitive um, action and just critique from such a small age, such a small age. I mean, we're in a time now where in some communities you have security guards in early childhood centers. What are we saying to our babies and some will say, okay, well, it's for the people who do not act this way or that way. And that's understood, but are we thinking about brain development? Are we thinking about the actual responses that come out of that type of forced interaction? You know, you're creating a hostile environment, but you're telling me to keep it cool. How do we keep it cool when 
I'm being treated as though I've committed a crime prior to really living, living, you know? And the next thing is too, just like we're saying with not having um, the tools, not only are you like creating this environment of just discomfort, but then you have people that are interacting within it and acting in authoritative, authoritative positions that are not aware of the expectations that they should have. So for example, um, let's say if you work at a community center and you have many people that are coming in irrational due to drug abuse or irrational due to trauma, if it's a violent neighborhood. I know some people really think that they could just get it together if they heard gunshots every night, but guess what? Many of us can't. So there are going to be days when I walk in and it's not funny by any means, but it's like, it's that simple. Every day is not going to be a great day for me. Sometimes I'm going to be responsive to emotional triggers. I know I hold it together every minute of the day. I know that I do, but today is not a good day. Even for domestic violence victims or people that are moving through it as survivors, they, what we have to understand is what we're presenting people and then the fact that they're responding, they're not initiating, right? Like even when we talk about the whole avenue of the way that we are attempting to help people understand the, that Black rights, Black lives and Black rights, period, matter, right? So there's always that conversation of, well, you guys are violent or you're this or you're that. There are many, th these are responses to actions that have been done for time periods on time periods on time periods. So unless we're going to stop and educate in those spaces, we're just gonna get the same result. We're, we're only gonna get the same result. And that's why for me now, I'm like so into just trying to digest where my own head is at and then where other people's heads are because we need to have appropriate expectations with each other so that we can have fruitful conversations. That's my thought.